Welcome to Speaking Out. We're mainly discussing land rights and economic empowerment. Aboriginal enterprises in mining, exploration and energy. To talk a little bit about uh, Indigenous constitutional recognition. Those With Larissa Berendt. It's a fresh view coming on. On ABC Radio. Going back to a time when I actually used to cut my questions out of interviews where I was in denial about what my role was in, in an interaction with another blackfella, that I wasn't part of the story, that I w- could, could easily be taken out. I'm going back to that and thinking that was how little I thought of myself, how little I thought of my perspective. And the fact is, it's always a conversation that you're having, right? You're, you are engaged with another blackfella, you're talking about stuff that's really important to you and to them. And I realised that I'm actually a part of the conversation. I'm actually in there. So in that is kind of like realising too that my perspective is one that others may be interested in, that, that I do have a perspective, I do have something to say. Daniel Browning, close to the subject and a special First Nations edition of Mianjin. There's been lots and lots of debates about, oh, oral storytelling and therefore thinking about the written word and Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander writing that is written down as that's somehow a progression towards civilization. Sometimes I think about that. Or this progression towards high art. So, Mianjin, I, I really love the idea of trying to, it's a little bit cheeky of me, but kind of trying to, you know, decenter that or to attack those power structures. This is Speaking Out. I'm Larissa Berendt. Daniel Browning has been a First Nations journalist for more than 30 years. A keen observer of the visual arts, he has secured his reputation as one of Australia's most accomplished arts writers and broadcasters. Daniel has spent more than three decades speaking with First Nations artists, activists and elders about their creative process and personal journey. For many years, he produced and presented Radio National's Indigenous Arts and Culture program Away before taking on a position as presenter of the art show. Now he's decided the time is right to compile his first book. Close to the subject is a collection of essays chronicling his career as a journalist, radio broadcaster, sound artist, critic and interviewer. The book also features a range of previously unpublished poetry, memoir, art writing and play script. It's a brilliant read. I've described it as a masterclass in First Nations creativity, culture and story. Daniel Browning, welcome back to the program. Thanks so much, Larissa. That's a pleasure to be here. Well, since we're going to be looking at this wonderful book, The Selected Works, which, um, you know, covers a, a broad range of your career and your your different identities as well. Mm. Wonder if we could sort of start with a bit of framing. The the values that come through really strongly in your work are a deep respect for culture and a deep appreciation and understanding of the rights movement and I wonder where that came from. I think everything well I think I, when I started at the ABC I I had I knew basically nothing. So I, in, in making this work, in, in, you know, I think you're talking about the documentaries that I've made over the years, um, a lot of the interviews that I've done have really been informed by my research um, as a journalist and just kind of getting to know my subject and getting deeply into the history and, and learning more. I mean, I, I think you know that when you open a mic, you, you're expected to know you know, as much as you can about a particular story or a viewpoint or the history of a movement, you need to know really what you're talking about. 
and it really works best when you know what you're talking about. So I think in, in that, I just, I went as far, as deep into the history as I could go. And I'm fascinated with um, the stories that, that our elders have told about the, the rights movement, particularly certain figures in the rights movement and the very, very early rights movement have shaped my way of seeing the world and have shaped what kind of journalist I am. I don't think you can be work in the space that we work in, you and I, um, and not be across what those who came before us, our, lit- our literal ancestors, by which I mean they came before us, they, didn't, they aren't our blood ancestors, but all those, what all those people said and thought and how much what we say and think is prescribed by what they say, what they said and they thought. So we have to always be aware of what our legacies are and where we are speaking. We have to speak in turn, right? We have to know what we're talking about and know where that comes from. So in order to do that, I had to go back through the history and really, really learn what it is that it is to be a blackfellow in this country. A lot of your writing, reflection and interviews um, have been in this First Nations art and culture space over time. What was it that drew you into this area? And I guess what I'm wondering is, how does the boy from Fingal (laughs) end up a journalist and then become one of the country's leading experts on Indigenous art and culture? And don't argue with me because you, of course, not only um, have been a journalist all of that time and done significant work within the radio section of the ABC, but you are, of course, now um, the arts reporter as well. So... You can't argue with me on that point. So how does a boy from Fingal get to be uh, that person? Oh, look, I'm, I was always mad about art. I was always mad, madly um, scribbling in front of the light of the TV in our house at South Tweed. Um, always drawn to art, always absolutely an, an artist from the day I, from the first day I can remember. Um, I was drawing fanatically. And so I went to finally decided that I wasn't, I shouldn't try and please my elders. I should just just actually do the university degree that would most appeal to me, and that was visual art. And then in, in visual art, I realised kind of at the end of my degree that I was not good enough to sustain a career as an artist. It's really, really tough, right? But I knew that I could write about art. I knew that I could think about art. I knew that I could talk about art. And so I kind of just bide my time until until a job came along presenting away, uh, you know, speaking out sister program, um, you know, that, that came along in 2004 and, and, and I, I was in a really good position. People wanted to know about Aboriginal art. They wanted to know about this thing, this phenomenon and, and how it um, expressed so many... Um, so many of our aspirations. What's in the in the in the art that um, expresses who we are? And I felt that I was in a really good place to to kind of kind of finish that conversation or have that conversation with others, and to take that to the next level to to take it to an international audience. It just naturally evolved that way. I don't think there was any, <laughs> there was no foresight or, um, you know, I didn't, w- I didn't wish it to be like that. It's just that's, that's what the art is. The art is an important um, tool and way of communicating and being able to read it successfully, being able to read it critically, I think is an important skill. And I just seem to have that skill at the right time, at the right point in, 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 in history perhaps. 
Well, it comes through in your writing and it comes through in this book. I love this book. It has so many different dimensions to it that really reflect different aspects of who you are. But if, from your perspective in terms of putting it together, why was it time for a collection and how did you choose what you would put in the book when you had such a volume of work to choose from? What was that process like? Hey, um, it, it really wasn't my idea. And um, really I was guided by um, Magabala, the publisher, um, Rachel Binsala, who's a, a woman I respect deeply and admire deeply for the way she's given voice to uh, our mob over a very long period of time, approached me out of the blue at a black and bright, um, the, the literary festival that ha- happens every few years in Melbourne. And um, I say it was her fever dream <laughs> because it happened, I think, at the, at the builder's arms across a bar. <laughs> she had, not a great story, but... Well, many, was, probably many good ideas have uh, been found good, that way. Absolutely, <laughs> absolutely. And so it was, it, was, it was actually born in one of those pubs, you know, that, that, that our mob used to always hang out at. And that, did, that was appropriate because it came out just out of conversation and she was like, I really think you should think about putting your writing together. Like, I'd like... To, to know what, you know, how we can make this into, into something. And there was no clear idea about a book or an anthology or a collected writing um, volume or anything like that. It was just very haphazard. And, and then the contract came through and, you know, she managed to convince the board of Magabala to kind of put their faith in, in, in this first-time writer. And um, it kind of went from there. It wasn't my... I did not generate this. This is not my idea. As much as I love what it has done and what it, what it, what it, what it does. Um, yeah, it wasn't something that I, I really, really intended. And that contract sat on my inbox for throughout the pandemic and for months thereafter. So, um, that it's become, that it's become a reality is a, is kind of, I'm pinching myself all the time because, you know, we work in the radio, we work in with sound, we work with something that, that disappears sound waves and um, they're always dispersing. They're never, there's nothing permanent about what we do in, in that way. And that's part of its beauty, its immediacy. But actually putting pen to paper, I realised what a power there is in that, in that and, and how, you know, you can't, you can't just pretend this book didn't happen. <laughs> it's, it's now, in, it's now in the, in, on the public record and it, it'll be in libraries and that became really important in terms of stating who I was where I come from and who my mob are and, and, and how, we, how we relate to the world and, and just giving those people an identity other than outside of me. Something that really resonates with me in the book is the way you understand the layering in the work of the artists you profile and critique. And many of my favourites are um, in there, Daniel Boyd, Tony Albert, Richard Bell, Vernon Arkey, Julie Goff. And particularly, I think you're very strong at leaning into artists that the mainstream would find provocative or conf- confrontational. And I wonder what you hope your, perspec- your perspective brings when you're engaging artists like that who are probably uh, misunderstood by the mainstream. Look, I think the work is, is where you've got to look. Yes, we can look to the individual, we can look to the personality of the artists. And I, all those people that you mentioned, I not only um, admire and respect, I love as, 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 as colleagues, as people who are moving towards the same kind of goal, and that is understanding who we are. And, you know, I get very close to my subject, hence the, hence the title of the work. And I make no apologies for that. Um, look, I always think 
a lot of the work doesn't need me to explain it. But there is a lot of nuance and a lot of subtlety and a lot of explication that can happen around that work that, that, that makes it more impactful and perhaps communicates to a much broader audience and not just thinking about the national audience, thinking about an international audience and also thinking about context and history and where this work comes from, how it's part of a lineage of, 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 of stories and of, of pictures and putting it into that lineage. I think you need a critic sometimes to um, make work um, just, just to push um, it, it even further and to explain precisely where the work comes from, from your perspective. I mean, I'm just one person who thinks these things about this work um, and I try to get the facts right, but it's, it's really sometimes my opinion and, 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 you know, I think I've earned the right to have an opinion about, about the artwork and I, re I respect what they're trying to do. I really understand where it comes from and in that understanding, I would like to communicate that to a much wider audience. And if we can use the, the art to, you know, communicate much more deeply a sense of history and a sense of politics and a sense of the contemporaneity of the past and also of, of what, it, what it is to be a black fella today, then the work's doing that. But I, I think I can just push a little bit harder and, and, and maybe drive that message home even, even more. They don't need me, those artists. They certainly don't need me. But my view, I think, is, is being sought after because I, I know where the work falls in a, in a history of, of, of image making um, and not just Aboriginal art. I'm talking about generally across, across, across art. I'm, 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 I know my art history. So I know where this work fits. I think also too, just to add to that, I think my experience in reading your work about artists that I really, I really respond to is I often feel like you write what it is that I'm feeling, but I haven't articulated myself. So I think that's also a very important part of, of the translation that you're doing from your perspective when you're looking at it. But the other aspect that runs through the book in places, it's very much about your positionality and who you are and the issues that you've contributed to, um, is the focus on gay, LGBTQIA and queer identity and its intersection with First Nations people, culture, community. And there's a lovely recognition of those who've paved the way in our community to confront homophobia and to ensure the protection of rights. I'm thinking particularly of your beautiful writing of people like Noel Tovey, real trailblazers who shouldn't be forgotten. And yet you also talk about how far we still have to go. Why did you feel it was so important um, to write into this space? Um, what is it important? What do you feel is important for you to say about this, this area? Well, look, I mean, I think, you know, we're a minority within a minority and occasionally we might feel like we don't have a voice. And to be queer and black, what does that mean? Like, how can you be queer and, 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 and black? And, and, and what, is it, what is it to be that? And I think, you know, a lot of the, the artwork and a lot of the people I've spoken to over the years, I've just been naturally been drawn to them. I've been drawn to their honesty. I've been drawn to their strength. And, you know, I, I did a project for, for Sydney, Sydney World Pride and that was going around the country and speaking to... Um, you know, First Nations mob who, who were there at the, the really important moments in history um, when we had no, when, when as, as, as gay, lesbian, uh, transgender and intersex and uh, people, we had no rights, whatever, or we, were, we, could, be, we could be beaten uh, and locked up in, in, 
in a, in a prison cell in, in Surrey Hills or Darlinghurst for just, you know, marching for our rights. Those, that kind of intersection of those rights of like a being, a being a black fella and being queer really fascinated me and fascinates me how, how they did that and how they, you know, were able to kind of get up every day regardless, ha- having all that kind of community, having even sometimes the contempt of their communities, how they still navigated that space is fascinating and, and going through and talking to them and hearing their stories was something I'll never forget. You know, it, it, it actually, they live this concept of pride. Pride isn't just a trademark. Pride isn't just an idea. Pride goes right to this, the core of who you are. And, um, you know, my work with, you know, my brothers and sisters in, in this space has just been, it's just, it's just what you do. It's generative. You've just got to do it. You've got to do this work because it's important. These people need to be acknowledged. And really my work has been about acknowledging people who've, who've come before me and thinking about my legacy, what is their legacy, and acknowledging that I don't come from nowhere. I'm part of a lineage of storytellers. Um, and that's you know, it's precisely what I've tried to do with the book. With the people I've pursued over the years, it's always been for stories. It's always been about I want them to be acknowledged of course, the book also includes your own very personal reflections, including some poetry that hasn't been published before. And in many ways, I feel like it's the part of the book where your voice is strongest. What's it like putting so much of yourself out there when you're usually the person asking the questions? Look, I think this is the challenge, isn't it? It's like, well, you spend your life... I mean, I, I, I don't know about you, but the, uh, going back to a time when I actually used to cut my questions out of interviews, where I was in denial about what my role was in, in an interaction with another blackfella, that I wasn't part of the story, that I w- could, could easily be taken out. I'm going back to that and thinking that was how little I thought of myself, how little I thought of my perspective. And the fact is, it's always a conversation that you're having, right? You you are engaged with another black fellow. You're talking about stuff that's really important to you and to them. And I realised that I'm actually a part of the conversation. I'm actually in there, and I'm, it's impossible to take me out. So in that is kind of like realising too that my perspective is one that others may be interested in, that that I do have a perspective, I do have something to say, and it's not you're not just being a journalist, you're not just being the mediator between two other, you know, the message and and something else. You're actually an active part of that conversation and recognising too that as a black fella, this is important. I am present here with this other black fella and we are having this conversation on these terms about these things. It's significant, right? So don't pretend like you're not in that conversation. It became important to me to actually be active and be, be honest about what my part was in, this, in, in telling this story. Um, and I don't feel any shame about that now. I feel like I have, have, have earned the right to speak and that what I, what I say is important. And it's just getting to that point, really. It's like you, you, you spend a long time doing an apprenticeship. You know this, Larissa. You spend most of the time not saying anything. And then you realise, actually, what I have to say is important and I can contribute to this conversation and enrich it and make it better. Um, that's, what, that's where that recognition comes from. 
I've heard you speak about this and I love your thinking on it. So I'm going to ask you, what do you see the role of the First Nations artists being in national debates? I think in the absence of a political presence, of a political voice, if you like, a, a, in the loss of a, of a leadership at, at the very highest level in this country, the voice of the artist became really important. It, it has always been important. And I think if you go back into our cultures, you'll realise people who are telling their stories visually were very important. They were given a special um, place and to be able to tell stories visually was, was and is important to who we are. And to be able to tell the story through as like an orator, to, to be able to, to recite poetry, to be able to recite song was important. So the, the artist does, comes into this kind of vacuum. The Aboriginal artist, I mean. <clears throat> so <clears throat> the Aboriginal artist kind of comes in this vacuum. And in this vacuum, what they say is really, really profoundly important. In the absence of, of, of like informed political debate, when there is no other side, um, what the artist is saying uh, really points us towards, you know, artists, they don't tell us what to think. They tell us where to look. I always, say, always think, okay, look over here. Richard Bell, Fiona Foley, um, any, any artist, Julie Goff, any artist that you name, they are telling us where to look. It may, be in, it may be in the past, it may be in the future, but they're telling us where to look. And that is where we need to kind of focus and train our eyes and, 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 and get something more than just a visual experience, an aesthetic experience. You're getting an education in, you know, a caution to use that word, but an education in, in, in what it means to be cont- contemporary and to be black in Australia today. I do also want to acknowledge that you still engage with your own artistic practice. There are elements of the book that are drawn from some of your creative projects. How do you choose your projects? Because they're very eclectic. And I was just, <laughs> I, you know, I, I think it's an interesting element. I mean, you, you, we've talked about your positionality in critiquing artists, but you do practice, you do have your own creative practice as well. Yeah, I mean, I think... It- it really kind of came out. I was on a three-month residency in, in, in Paris recently from May to August and, and, and took some time off from the ABC, um, some long service leave. And really that, that focus that I was able to have on that residency, um, the gift of those residencies is not that you're in Paris for three months eating baguettes and, and doing whatever. I had. <laughs> and, 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 although that is a, that's, a, that's a nice kind of... Um, that is what we that's imagine a, that's a bonus. you are doing when you're oh, well, there. <laughs> I, 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 truly, truly I was. Um, um, it's, it's, it, the gift of those residencies is focus. And in our jobs, we are not able to focus on anything. I mean, you are doing several things today and many, many interviews and you're focusing on very many subjects, telling you, talking about very many different, different things. Well, that is... That can constrain you. It, it can mean that you're what you're doing. You're not focused. You're not, you're not focused on the one thing. And I wanted to focus on two things, two subjects, and I did. And I was able to kind of work creatively and to think creatively. And look, it's you know what I did was a you know I um, basically in 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 trying to get close to my subject. Um, 
a man who was cast in Lyon in the in the late nineteenth century in eighteen eighty three. Cast by I mean I mean he was a plaster cast was made of his body. In, in getting close to what his experiences were, and he's a, it's a story that I've covered um, over the years and it's actually in the book, um, a feature, a documentary that I made in, in 2011. In getting close to understanding what he experienced, I actually underwent the same process. I had my body cast. Um, there was a team of people on, on stage and I was in public and I was wearing a G-string um, and I did this in public. I... I, I decided to undergo this process in order to get close to the subject, literally to understand what it was to, to have one's body cast in public. And that kind of sent me off in all kinds of different directions. And, you know, we're, we're so much more than just our writing. We're so much more than just our journalism. And to be creative, I think, is just something I will never not be doing. But it's just you don't have enough time to do it. So I'm going to push in that direction. I'm going to push to, to do more creative stuff and not just write about other people and things happening outside of me, but also to be part of it, to, to be a creator as well. Well, I hope you'll continue to share that journey of creativity on this really fascinating story with us as you go along, Daniel. Absolutely. I'd, I'd love to keep you abreast of all the, of all the movements. Um, the, the, the next book is really what I'm very much focused on. So, yeah, maybe we'll, um, we'll, 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 we'll chat about that uh, sometime in the future, hopefully. I would hope so. But in the meantime, I highly recommend Close to the Subject Selected Works to everybody listening to get a wonderful overview and some insights into the work you've done over time. Daniel Browning, thank you so much for your work, your words, and for spending time with us on Speaking Out. My absolute pleasure. Daniel is also editor of the Indigenous Radio here at the ABC and presenter of The Art Show on ABC Radio National. His book, Close to the Subject, Selected Works, is available now through Magabala Books. You're listening to Speaking Out. It just comes down to showing, sharing, you know, respecting. The world from an Indigenous perspective on ABC Radio. This is Speaking Out on ABC Radio, Radio National, Radio Australia on podcast and the ABC Listen app. I'm Larissa Berendt and if you like what you're hearing, why not rate us on your app and that way other people can find us and hear our stories too. To complement a growing appreciation of First Nations writing and storytelling, the literary magazine Mianjin has put together a special First Nations edition. We'll hear from one of the guest editors, Eugenia Flynn, shortly. But first, some music from the Marindas. The colour of the light runs into my soul. Time is ticking fast, it's out of control. My feet are off the ground, I'm on the high tide. Carry me away into the nightlife. You know I love it.
Marinda's there with I Feel It. The group first came to prominence at the launch of Wayne Blair's The Sapphires back in 2012. This is speaking out. That's the key to it all, keeping connected to country. On ABC Radio. Meangin is a quarterly publication of writing that pushes the boundaries a little and embraces critical discussion. It tries to foster rigorous national conversations and it describes itself as articulating the Australian cultural moment. So it's perhaps fitting that the spring edition is 100% Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander writers for the first time in Mianjin's 83-year history. Eugenia Flynn is one of the guest editors for this special edition. She's the Vice-Chancellor's Indigenous Postdoctoral Fellow in Writing and Publishing at the School of Media and Communication at RMIT. She writes essays, short stories and poems about truth, grief and devastation, race and gender. 
Eugenia Flynn, welcome back to Speaking Out. Thanks for having me. Now, you describe yourself as a Larrakia, Tiwi, Chinese, Malaysian and Muslim writer, researcher, creative practitioner and community organiser. So my first question before we get into Mianjin is where did you grow up and how did your multiple identities shape your worldview? So I grew up on Ghana country in Adelaide. My parents, I mean, my mum had migrated from Malaysia. Her parents before her had migrated from southern China to Malaysia. She migrated to Darwin. And my parents had half of our family up in Darwin and then moved to Adelaide before I was born. So I was born and raised on Ghana country. I put my identities and cultural perspectives in my bio because they completely inform my work. It's not something that I want to shy away from. And I think that that shapes a particular political worldview that comes from a lot of racialization and gendered racialization. And I bring that to my writing, to the editorial work that I've just done, to my research, all of those things. And when you write, what is the process about for you? Is it more for writing for yourself? Do you think of an audience? Are you writing for people like you? Are you writing to try and communicate your experience to people who might not be able to imagine standing in your shoes? Or is it a bit of a mix of all? What sort of inspires your writing and what's your motivation? Yeah, it's definitely a combo of of those things. So one of the things that I really wanted to do with my writing was to write for myself in lots of ways because I just never saw my perspective out there and started publishing, self-publishing my writing on a blog back when that was really popular, when um, the internet and social media were kind of democratising media. So people like me and you know, there were people like me who had been traditionally excluded from having that voice and having those platforms. So I wanted to write for me to see that perspective and discovered that I naturally found an audience, that there were other people like me who also wanted to hear those perspectives and those ideas, particularly thinking through ideas about race and racism and racialization in the context of Australia. So Yeah, I really kind of started out writing for me and found an audience. And I think when I go through the process of writing, I think about an ideal reader. And that came from, I was mentored by a friend, Dr. Shakira Hussain, who's an amazing academic and writer and researcher. And she told me to think about an ideal writer. And I often just think about particularly young black women who can be so disempowered and voices can be silenced. And I thought about them and how I wanted to strengthen them through my writing. So that's kind of the ideal reader that I think of. Which is why it's exciting to be talking to you about this project because, of course, it's something where you've created space for other writers. You're one of two guest editors for this very special uh, First Nations edition of Mianjin. How did the project come about and how did you approach the role? Um, myself and Bridget Coldwell Bright were invited to be guest co-editors by um, Mianjin's, at that stage, newly minted editor Esther Anatolidis. 
And she wanted to do an issue that was all First Nations. I don't think she had a specific idea about that, just a general idea, especially because we are in the year where a referendum at that stage was it going likely to be called, all of that sort of stuff. And we said, well, it's not really topical, although some of the pieces in the edition have ended up talking or touching on that topic. But we sort of took that and said, well, we want to work through our sense of how we would want to piece this together. So we really thought through, you know, wanting to have a mix of both established voices, but emerging voices, wanting to partly commission pieces and invite people to write, but also to have an open call out because there just may be people that we haven't considered or that we just don't know. And that really did generate some really great pieces in the edition. And I think we we really just wanted to work through Blackfellow ways of working. We felt that that was really important. We were really, really clear from kind of the beginning that what we were being offered was not necessarily a takeover. It was a a sense of handing over power, but there were definitely limitations to that. And we were all very honest and open about what those limitations were from the very beginning. And so we wanted to work through Blackfellow ways of working. And one of those things was thinking through our theme of place and that grounding to country and our sovereignty and the sovereignty of our words and who we are as writers and editors. I want to come back to some of those really important themes, but I guess just as a preliminary question, um, from your perspective, why was it so important to have an edition that was all First Nations writers? What really attracted you about that idea? In my research life. I'm um, a scholar of, you know, Indigenous literature. And when you look across kind of the history of Australian literature and therefore its interactions within the way it conceptualises and the way that power is exerted within the Australian literary sector related to Indigenous literature, you know, there there are power dynamics at play. And Mianjin is one of if not the, oh, I can't remember, but it's one of the oldest literary journals in the country, oldest running. And that means something. You know, when we think about literature, people think of extremely high art through words, right? And so often Indigenous literature has really been excluded from that in lots of different ways. You know, I think in the conceptualization and the creation of this phenomena called Indigenous literature, there's been lots and lots of debates about, oh, oral storytelling and therefore thinking about the written word and Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander writing that is written down as that somehow a progression towards civilization. Sometimes I think about that. Or this progression towards high art. So, Mianjin, I, I really love the idea of trying to, it's a little bit cheeky of me, but kind of trying to, you know, decenter that or to attack those power structures at the very site where that power exists and what better place than this very old traditional established journal. And it hasn't had an all First Nations edition before. It's had 
some attempts or some um, editions that have focused on First Nations people and writing, but it's never been done in this way before. Well, it's a pretty important first. Mianjin's founding principle was for writers to reveal and clarify our life by showing it to us through a vision different from ours and deeper. So it sounds like this is a great opportunity for people to get a sense of that through First Nations writing. When someone opens up this edition of Mianjin, what are they going to find and what have been some of your favourite pieces you've included? Oh, I don't want to play favourites, but I think uh, it's <laughs> hard, hard to not pick to. favourites. <laughs> it is. It is really hard. And I think I think what they're going to find is, one, it's very beautifully put together. And we have artwork from Tony Albert. And we also have some personal um, photos. We have some images of artworks. And we have um, some illustrations that some of the writers themselves did. So it's very beautifully kind of laid out. So it's a beautiful kind of artifact in a way, you know, when you hold it in your hands, um, it's going to feel and look um, really beautiful in lots of different ways. And, you know, I think within within the edition, we have tried to, as I said before, have that mix between um, very emerging people. So for example, we have Philip Bell, who is from up north there in Queensland, and he's 70, 70 something years old, has never ever published before. And he actually uh, wrote a Facebook post and included three poems. I spoke to him on the phone and he talked about how he had written these poems just over the course of his life and he never thought he would do anything with them. But he made this post on Facebook and someone in his family, a younger person in his family, encouraged him to um, send it through, through the open call out. And we just had this conversation. We've ended up printing kind of all of the elements of his Facebook post in which he talks a little bit about his life and then presents the poems and then presents kind of a DNA test because he talks about identity within it. And I just think it's really beautiful that we can have someone who has such an incredible rich history and at their age not being published yet, but having written these three poems that we kind of pushed the the boundaries of literary categorization and we categorized it as memoir. So it's just kind of nice to have that kind of work in there. And then we have fiction work by Tony Birch and uh, Janine Lane, who are both incredibly well-established uh, fiction writers. And we have um, beautiful poetry by 10 writers. We actually worked with Black and White and they did, uh, we, we collaborated with them on the editing of those 10 poems. And we have, you know, some beautiful works in there, again, from, you know, all the way from emerging all the way through to established and, and sort of mid-career. But we've got poems by Ellen Van Nieven, for example, and Samuel Wagon Watson. But we also have poems by people like Graham Ackhurst and Maya Hodge. And we have some really great kind of essay pieces. Gary Foley's done a State of the Nation piece. Um, we have a beautiful memoir-type essay from April Day, who's the daughter of Artie Tanya Day. We just have really great pieces that are wonderfully 
different from each other. So I think people will get a sense of the the breadth and the depth of First Nations writing. It sounds amazing. So the next thing I'm going to ask is because there'll be people who've just heard that and will be saying, how do I get a copy of that? So how can people get a copy? You can physically buy a copy, hopefully in your bookshops, in wherever you're located across the country. So for example, here in Melbourne, it will be stocked at Readings. Um, and you can also order online. So um, Melbourne University Press are the ones that kind of uh, do the printing for Mianjin and you can order through their website. Now, you mentioned earlier that Mianjin is, you know, the oldest literary journal um, and it was started back in 1940 in Brisbane and that's why the founder named it Mianjin and then, of course, it moved down to Melbourne. But I was interested, the founding editor, Clem Christensen, wrote that the important determinant of any culture is the spirit of place. And it struck me that in 1940, that was a very unusual thing for a non-Indigenous Australian to say. But it made me reflect, here you are, you've just co-edited the first all-Indigenous edition of this really important journal. How do you feel about the progress we've made since that time, particularly in terms of appreciation of First Nations place and the use and regeneration of our languages? Yeah, it's a really interesting question. I think that there has been lots of progress made in terms of the ready acceptance of place names that are, you know, wanting to switch from non-Indigenous European place names to Indigenous ones and using Indigenous languages. I think that there has been lots of uh, rapid change in the last kind of few years in particular, but I think that things can be really, really slow. I think that what we have seen is sometimes goodwill and then I attended a book launch yesterday for one of the writers actually that's in our edition, Melanie Sayward. She's got a debut novel out. And Tony Birch actually launched it and said some words at the beginning about when he started as a writer and going to writers' festivals and how often whenever he raised issues um, that Indigenous people were facing, how he often then ended up bluing with people in the audience, you know, having to defend his position or uh, the issues that he was trying to raise. And that wasn't that long ago. And so I think that, you know, we have had some very rapid, um, very rapid change recently, but I think there is still so much more work to do. And while there is kind of this ready acceptance, I think that often there's still a sense of, um, whitefellas wanting to appropriate, maybe that's not the right word, but kind of have a sense of ownership. So you have to give us these names, you know, or if we think about, for example, Indigenous knowledges, so related to the environment, for example, that, you know, they have the right to know that you have to give us the answers. And I think, you know, we don't have to, um, we don't have to do that. I think that there's so much reclamation that has to happen first and that can happen within our communities. And I think that, you know, having supportive people, uh, supportive allies who understand that they don't necessarily own the processes, uh, that they can't determine the, the timelines and that actually it's about supporting us to do these things on our own terms, um, I think that that's going to be incredibly important moving forward. 
We've obviously been very focused on the issue of voice this year, but the other element of the pathway forward is truth-telling. From your perspective, what is the role of First Nations writers in the truth-telling process? Oh, well, you know, we actually have a piece in the edition. It's the one by Tony Birch that's actually called just simply truth. And, you know, First Nations writers and artists in general are at the forefront of telling our truths. If we look back across Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander literary history, those truths have been told for an extremely long time. So if we reconceptualise what Aboriginal literature is and we think about the very early texts that were written in English, quite often they were things like petitions. They were letters to government administration. So they were fighting for our rights from the very beginning through the written word because they understood that our ancestors understood that as a site of power where they could grapple with the colonisers in that arena. And then I think, you know, when we fast forward to 1964, when Ujuru who was then known as Kath Walker, publishes her book, that book was a book of poetry that was just filled with resistance. You know, often when I talk about this book, I also mention that it was filled with hope and love and lots of different things. But there was definitely an element of very strong resistance, which I think is is very characteristic of that time period as well. And then when we move through Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander literary history, you know, kind of the next really big moment is telling our life stories. And so there's so much life writing, particularly by Aboriginal women, that happens. You know, if we think about um, books like Take Your Love to Town, Rabbit Proof Fence, there's so many different incredible books that are life writing where people are telling their truths through the written word. So when we come to talking about issues like voice, truth and treaty, it's really hard for me to sit there and hear people talk through how we should tell the truth because I often think we've we've been telling the truth for over 200 years. It's just that white fellas haven't been listening to us. And so what purpose does it serve to tell the truth again, right? I think we have to think really carefully about that. I've been working with a group called the Ebony Institute. We've been thinking through those ideas about how you tell the truth in a way that achieves an actual outcome rather than just telling the truth again for the sake of telling the truth. And, you know, sometimes when non-Indigenous people go to read Indigenous writing, and I've had this with my own work, that sometimes the elements that get picked out are the ones that are the most emotive or that I sometimes wonder if it's voyeuristic. And I think we have to be really careful in a, in a period, any period or any formal process that we go through with truth-telling, particularly when it comes to our artists and our writers and people who have been at the forefront for such a long time, to tell our truths in ways that, as I said before, actually results in something. And secondly, that doesn't re-traumatise us because I think it definitely has the potential for that. 
One of the things that I'm struck in listening to you talk is that I've known you for many years now, and I know that you've always been a contributor to national conversations. You've always got a very generous spirit and you're very optimistic. So what's your vision for a future Australia? What do you, what would you like to see? Oh, that is so funny because I think my family would probably tell you that I'm not particularly optimistic, which is very funny. <laughs> I've always found I, you to be quite optimistic. I do. I like to see both sides. I think, I, I think my my little superpower is probably that I can be particularly objective in lots of different ways. Even if I don't agree with the other side, I, I'm pretty good at being able to see that point of view and understand it with a, a bit of a measure of objectiveness. You know, in terms of my vision and thinking for the future, oh, that's such a big question. I think, you know, once upon a time, I really bought into the idea of nationhood and moving together um, as Australia. I think I'm probably a little bit more radical now. And I think that we need to rethink what Australia even means. I think that that's important for us because it's kind of trying to fix something that's broken and you're trying to put band-aids over the top and it's not quite working. So I think that going back a step and trying to find the source or the root problem and fixing those foundations is probably the most important thing. And I think there's different ways that we can do that. Don't just keep us on the same trajectory with some fixes and patches, but might actually set us in a different trajectory that has things like racial justice um, built into the very foundations, that has things like economic justice and anti-capitalist. We're living in a cost of living crisis and a housing crisis where people people need to be able to live and be free economically. So, you know, I think if we can, you know, things like gender equity, if we can think about, I think, resetting the course of the nation, whatever shape or form that takes, I think that that's really important. That's Eugenia Flynn, Vice-Chancellor's Indigenous Postdoctoral Fellow at RMIT and co-guest editor of Mianjin's first edition of Entirely First Nations Writers. That's the show for this week. Join us again next time for more inspiring stories from across Indigenous Australia. This episode of Speaking Out was produced by Jane McAllister and Sarah Allerley. You can email the program speakingout at abc.net.au and find us on social media via ABC Indigenous. I'm Larissa Berendt.